to Fantastic History. I'm Sarah. And I'm Clay. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. So I mentioned a few episodes back that I'd be visiting Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, I just got back from that trip a few days ago, and it was amazing. Uh, I had peanut butter, wonderful coffee from Mary Lou's every single day. Mm. I went to Papa Gino's for the best pizza on earth. And I stopped by one of my favorite historical monuments ever, the Mayflower 2. So I'm not into colonization and I'm definitely not into Puritans. Uh, but for whatever frivolous reason, I lose my mind over the Mayflower. <laughs> Like you, you may know I I have a Mayflower tattoo, like just of the actual flower emblem, not of the ship. Right. So you know, I don't I don't know what my problem is. Um, it could be the indoctrination that comes with the public school education, or it could just be that I love Plymouth because my bestie lives in Plymouth County. Um, it's probably just because I love history so much, and that landmark represents a pretty massive moment in history. For sure. I think that'd be fair to say. So the Pilgrims and the Founding Fathers are probably the main things people think of when they think about Massachusetts's place in history. And I get it. I do. Because not only do I have a weird Mayflower fetish, but I've also made a special trip down to Griffin's Wharf just so I could dump tea in the Boston Harbor. I remember you telling me about that. Yeah. I mean, so I, I completely understand if like that's you hear Massachusetts, you think of that and you move on. But I'm here to tell you that a lot of other interesting stuff has gone down in Massachusetts. Um, there's Salem, obviously. I know, Clay, that you're planning to cover the witch trials at some point. Yeah, perhaps. We, we, um, we covered it in a, in a recent previous episode in one of the uh, panic yeah, the the A to Z guide to panics. That was the S was yep. the Salem witch trial. So I think you've 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 mentioned that you'll probably do a, a deep dive in that. And if you do, like I'll probably do like a piggyback episode um, to kind of delve into how the city handled the aftermath oh, of, of that and how like because today they're known as the witch city and everything like not everything but a lot of things there are witch themed and like so just kind of. To cover how that happened, like how they went from A to Z on that one. Yeah. Um, another aspect of Salem's history that tends to get overshadowed because of all the witchy stuff is its critical role in the pirate and privateering trade. Oh. Yeah. So that's another topic that I'm going to cover in the future because it's so interesting. And it's something that I had never heard about until this trip that I went on last week. Uh, but what I came home from my trip most excited to talk to you about is, of course, true crime related. Oh, boy. Yeah. So what can you tell me about Lizzie Borden? Uh, <laughs> I know that you uh, had uh, you were involved with Lizzie quite a bit while you were up there. Yes. Uh, go ahead. Okay. Um, so what's interesting to me about the murder of Andrew and Abby Borden is it's so infamous because the level of brutality was horrific, but I mean, it was, it was a familial incident with two adult victims. And that's not normally the kind of thing that would make the headlines today. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you think about like Chris Watts, that made, I mean, it was horrible. It made the news like it, it was his wife, but also his children. Mm -hmm. So usually there are, you know, children involved when it's like a family story, like Lori Vallow, her kids are missed. Like usually people get up in arms about stuff happening to kids. There were no kids in this incident. 
So it's just surprising to me that it has the staying power that it has. Because, you know, I get, yeah. so, somebody, you know, freaked out and killed their parents. Okay. Yeah, it's a good point. Why, why has it stood the test of time? Exactly. So, I mean, maybe part of the interest comes from Lizzie being acquitted. Or maybe it lived on because it inspired that spooky little rhyme, which has always freaked me out. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, Maybe. Remind me. So it's kind of like it's one of those that kids would say like when they're jumping rope. So a little jump rope rhyme. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. That does sound familiar, but I wonder if it's because I've just been hanging out with you a bit too much. (laughs) Well, and and I will say, like, as I was reading it, it gave me chills. Like, it freaks me out. Yeah. It's so creepy. And especially to think of, like, little girls with pigtails jumping rope. Like, she gave her mother 40 wax. Like, the fuck? There's a lot of stuff like that that kids... Oh, yeah. Say like little rhymes and things that are pretty dark. Most of them, yeah. arguably. So before we really get into it, um, I wanted to say that I got some supplemental information from Smithsonian Magazine, and we'll have that article linked below. Um, but the bulk of this story I learned from Jack, the tour guide who showed me around the Lizzie Borden house when I was in Fall River last week. Okay. So that's what, you know, I kind of mentioned to you as I was like writing these notes, like most of this is coming from my head and it was kind of a different feeling because usually I've got like 18 tabs open, cross checking this and that. But like I just kind of sat down and wrote this. So yeah, a little different. Yeah, very different. Very strange. So huge shout out to Jack uh, because I thought I knew this case. I've listened to lots of podcasts covering the Bordens and watched documentaries and stuff. So I walked into that house the other day thinking I knew what happened and who did it. But I learned such an incredible amount on this tour that I've never heard anywhere else. And it totally changed my mind. Okay. And this is interesting because this is two episodes in a row about murder. Yes, and I I do apologize for that (laughs) because this is not, we're not turning into a true crime podcast, I promise, Mm -mm. but it was just, I came home busting to tell you about (laughs) this and I can't wait another couple of weeks. I'm sorry. It just, that's just the way it goes sometimes. Gotta be done. Yep. So a little background on the family. Andrew Borden was a banker who was rolling in money in the second half of the 1800s. His first wife, Sarah, died of a condition known as uterine congestion. At the time of Sarah's death, they had two daughters, 12-year-old Emma and 2-year-old Lizzie. So there's like, that's a pretty big age gap. Now, there was a daughter in between named Alice, but she died before Lizzie was even born. Okay. Um, Not a lot of information out there as to what happened to Alice, but just if you're wondering why the age gap, Alice. Now, because men in the 1800s didn't know how to feed or dress themselves or their kids, he was quick to remarry. Andrew and his second wife, Abby, purchased a duplex on 2nd Street in Fall River, Massachusetts in 1872 and had it converted into a single family home. So it's a pretty decent size because it used to house two families. Yeah. So one thing I don't hear discussed often, if ever, when talking about this case is the demographics of Fall River at that time. So obviously the first colonizers in Massachusetts were English Puritans, so Protestants, and that was the bulk of the population for quite some time. But then the Irish Catholics started coming over. This is two groups that have hated each other with a burning passion for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And it continues to this day, which is why we have Ireland and Northern Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. 
so the Bordens were English Protestants, and that area of Fall River was an English Protestant neighborhood when they bought their house. But that quickly started to change. Mm. So the main employer in Fall River became a textile mill, which drew more and more Irish Catholics into town to work, one of the few sort of jobs they could get at that time. Of course, they would want to live close to where they worked, which meant that the Borden's neighborhood quickly became an Irish Catholic one due to their proximity to the textile mill. The more Irish Catholics moved in, the more English Protestants moved to the other, richer side of town known as the Hill. The Bordens were more or less on their own after a while, and this became a problem for Lizzie and Emma as they got older. An English Protestant cannot date or marry an Irish Catholic at this point in history. And no English Protestants are going to come into an Irish Catholic neighborhood looking for cuties unless they want to get their asses severely kicked. (laughs) So there were no takers for these two very eligible bachelorettes. Even though it was in the same town. Yes. Oh, yes. Just the neighborhood. Mm Mm-hmm. That's interesting. They were almost the only English Protestants in that entire neighborhood. And just, you know, Lizzie and Emma never married. And that's a big part of the reason. Maybe not the entire one and certainly not later on. But um, big part of it, you know, in their younger years, why they were never married. Hmm. So if you're wondering why the Bordens didn't flee the neighborhood when it became apparent they no longer fit in, it's pretty much as simple as Andrew didn't want to move. This was his house that he'd sunk a lot of money into. It was only a block away from his business. And there's also the fact that he was incredibly stubborn. He was also incredibly, let's say, frugal. Oh. Mm-hmm. You know, this is giving me some, uh, some. it's reminding me a little bit of the Collier brothers. Yeah. The Colliers without the hoarding. Yeah, for sure. Yeah demographic changing around them yeah causing them to sort of draw inward mm-hmm. and then some consequences coming out of that exactly and it's with with the colliers it was the siblings it was you know lizzie and emma who became like they started to not leave the house except to go to church or to go to the store or whatever because they're not really welcome in their own neighborhood yeah so uh so at this point in time um when the crime happened, it was 1892. So we're, you know, late 1880s, early 1890s. Um, indoor plumbing and electricity were commonplace, and especially with wealthier families living smack dab in the middle of town, which the Bordens were. But Andrew thought that both of those were a frivolous waste of money. So the Bordens continued to use an outhouse and gas lamps. Wow. Yeah. So as Emma and Lizzie got older and no men were calling, the house started to feel more and more like a prison. Mm. They could not get jobs because they were women. They had no money of their own. They sailed past what was considered marriage age at that time, which like the cutoff socially was like 22. If you're not married by then, gross. Mm. And, And then they are dealing with their stingy dad, you know, doing his business in a chamber pot every night and tossing it under the pear tree in the morning, even though everyone else had flushing toilets. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you're not going to be in a good place. No. With that going on. So for someone who didn't want to pay for basic utilities, Andrew was generous in his gift giving to Abby's family. He gave away real estate to her siblings and cousins and whoever else like it was candy, but he didn't show his own daughters the same generosity. 
He eventually agreed to sell them the house he'd lived in with their mother, charging them $1 and then buying it back from them for $5,000 so he could continue to use it as a rental property. Like, kind of just to shut him up. Like, look, I sold you the house. Like, what do you want? Like, leave me alone. Mm -hmm. But he never outright gave them anything like he did with his in-laws. With Abby's family, he literally gave them these properties and asked for nothing in return. Is there a reason why? Because he's an asshole. I mean, okay. not not any reason that I could find. Okay. But just, you know, put it out there. He's maybe not number one dad. We'll say. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't, I don't get it. But that's neither here nor there. Just kind of something to keep in mind. That's what was going on. As much as they resented their father, if anything were to happen to him, Emma and Lizzie would be totally screwed. All of his money would go to Abby. And their relationship with her was a bad one, like, if we're being polite about it. Mm -hmm. It was common at that time to refer to your step-parent as either mother or father. And, like, if you were close with them, you had a casual relationship, you could call them by their first name. So they could have called her either mother or Abby. But Emma and Lizzie referred to Abby as Mrs. Borden, to her face, and stuff like the hag or the bloated sow behind her back. Oof. Yeah, not not cool. Not uh, not on good terms there. They also refused to eat their meals at the family table if Abby was going to be joining them. Because that's, it's too casual. Hmm. I don't know you like that. So, you know, there was certainly no guarantee that they'd be able to keep living in their family home if their father died and everything went to Abby. They're adults. She's well within her rights to kick them out. Like, you know, why would yeah. you, if you are no longer obligated to these women, why would you want to stay around them? They're calling you the bloated sow behind your back. Fuck off. Yeah. It's not, not ideal. No, no, no good. So further complicating matters is the fact that even if Abby did show them mercy and allow them continue living in the house, everything would pass along to her male family members when she died. Once again, leaving Emma and Lizzie penniless and destitute with no family living nearby and no hope of marriage or employment. And don't forget, Fall River has become primarily Irish Catholic by this point, meaning that the poor houses are run by the Catholic Church and they would not welcome Protestant women. Jeez. Yeah. So pretty much the second your dad dies, you are on the streets with nothing. Yeah. The hell. Pretty bad. But what if Abby died before Andrew? And what if Andrew didn't have time to remarry? Well, in that case, his estate would pass directly to his daughters because they would be his only living relatives. Mm. Even though they're women. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So let's jump to August 4th, 1892. Uh, happy birthday to my mom. Um, born on August 4th, but not in 1892. <laughs> <laughs> that morning, there are five people in the Borden home. Andrew, Abby, Lizzie, their maid Bridget, and Emma and Lizzie's uncle, John Morse. So John was Sarah's brother. Okay. So Emma that day was in Fairhaven visiting friends and her alibi during this time was thoroughly documented. It was airtight the entire day she was gone. She was gone. Her, their uncle was there mm -hmm. for some reason. 
he had business in Fall River and he was just staying with them while he was there doing business. Okay. And to visit with his nieces because that's what remained of his sister who he'd been very close to. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. But what's kind of odd is Uncle John is there on business and he goes out of his way to document his alibi as well. Kind of more than you would expect of somebody who's just kind of in town on business and visiting family, right? Like, that's kind of strange. But he made a point of getting timed receipts everywhere that he went that morning. Made sure that the time was written down by the person giving him the receipt. Mm, Okay. And he would later recall not only which number trolley he was on during the time of the murders, but he also managed to find out the name of the driver and of the horse. And the horse. And the horse. The driver and the horse, the number of the trolley, and remembered it well enough in his shock to be able to convey all this information to the police, who uh, could then verify his alibi. Okay. Very strange. Yeah. So Andrew Borden had several business-related appointments that day, and he left the house after breakfast, so around 9 o'clock or so. Bridget went outside to start cleaning the windows and Lizzie stayed in the dining room to iron her handkerchiefs. Totally normal thing to do. While Abby went upstairs to tidy the guest room Uncle John was using during his visit. Which it might seem kind of strange. We have a maid. But Abby's the one going upstairs to tidy up the room. That's because Bridget was Irish. So they didn't trust her to clean their rooms and the family's private rooms are on the second floor. So Bridget was paid to clean all three floors of the house, but she was only allowed to go on two of them. Okay. All right. So this is also important because there are two ways into the house. There's the front door, which they kept locked at like all the time. If Andrew left the house, they would lock the front door just to keep the women safe. Then there's also the back door. So the front door opens onto the main staircase and the back door opens onto Bridget's staircase. That staircase goes directly from the kitchen to the third floor where her rooms are so that she can't even access the second floor without them knowing it because she went up the front stairs. These are just not really not very chill people, (laughs) I would say, you know? Yeah, sounds like it. (sighs) So at that time, there's no way to access the rest of the house from the back door unless you went into the kitchen So you come in the back door, you either turn to go up the stairs or you go through the kitchen into the dining room. And remember that Lizzie is in the dining room ironing her handkerchiefs. Mm -hmm. So either somebody comes through that locked front door or they come through the back door and walk right past Lizzie and up the front stairs while Abby is in the guest room. That same super sneaky person was wielding a hatchet that they used to strike Abby in the side of the head, like kind of right above her ear. Forensics led investigators to believe Abby was facing her murderer at the time of the attack, but she had no defensive wounds on her, which implies she was killed by someone she knew. Mm. She didn't, you know, if somebody walks in who you don't know in your locked house, you would immediately be kind of on the defensive, but say just, hypothetically your stepdaughter walks in and maybe you don't see her hand because it's kind of in her skirt. So you don't see that she's holding something. She walks up to you and just kind of surprises you by knocking you in the side of the head. You're not going to have a chance to put your hands up. Right. Just something, you know, kind of odd. 
The first hatchet strike caused Abby to fall face down on the floor where she was struck 17 more times on the back of her head. Oh, God. Yeah. Not long after, Andrew returned home, even though he wasn't expected for several more hours. There were gastrointestinal issues at play in the household at this time due to some mutton that had gone bad that everyone ate for breakfast. Yuck. Everyone but Lizzie. Oh. Yeah. Just another interesting fact. It had been left out on the stove overnight after being cooked. Like, and that was maybe not the best. So Andrew came home to do his business and have a lie down. The problem was the front door was locked. And for some reason, his key didn't work. Almost like somebody had done something to ensure nobody could come through the front door, even with a key, unless they had some help. Okay. So Bridget couldn't even get the door open from the inside. And she started cursing in Gaelic. Andrew thought she was cursing at him because he didn't speak Gaelic. So he started cursing right back at her in English. Bridget would later testify that during this exchange, Lizzie was standing on the front stairs laughing her head off. (laughs) This is especially important to note because one, Abby Borden was extremely dead at this time with her blood and brains literally dripping from the ceiling. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And two, you could not be anywhere on the second floor without being able to see Abby's body. I've been in that house and stood on those stairs and I can personally attest to the fact that if Lizzie was upstairs, she knew Abby had been brutally murdered at this point. Okay. And Bridget testified that Abby, or sorry, testified that Lizzie was upstairs at this point. No way she didn't know. Eventually, Andrew is able to come in and go to the potty and is just not feeling very well. He and Lizzie chat for a bit about the day he's had so far. Then she suggests that he lays down on the couch and takes a little nap before deciding whether or not to continue with his appointments for the day. So it's interesting that she would suggest he nap on the couch downstairs instead of going upstairs to his bedroom. That is strange. Where he would he would have to walk right past the open door to that bedroom to get to his own bedroom. All The house is kind of strange in the fact that it doesn't have hallways it's a lot of kind of interconnected rooms so he'd he'd have to go through that area walk right past it to even get to his own bed so lizzie's like why don't you lay down on the couch get some rest okay yeah but if i so once he takes this nap if i'm remembering right the plan was that he was going to go back out because this was the day that he collected the rent on all of the properties he owned so even though he's not feeling good, he's not ready to be done for the day either. He just kind of needs to kind of gather his strength, I guess, <laughs> yeah. his, his tummy strength. Yeah, pull it together. As part of their chat, you know, Andrew, of course, he asks Lizzie, hey, where's Abby? Because she didn't come down to greet him like she normally would. Lizzie told him that Mrs. Borden had received a letter from a sick friend and had gone to call on the friend. So she wasn't home. She left. Bridget would later testify that she helped Andrew remove his boots and put on his slippers before he laid down on the couch for his nap. She then claims to have told Lizzie about a department store sale that was happening that day. And Lizzie invited Bridget to come along, but Bridget was having the same tummy troubles as everyone else. And she was tired from washing the windows. So she went upstairs to lie down for a while. At this point, Abby had been dead for an hour and a half. Mm. 
This means that her killer hung around the house for 90 minutes, unseen and uninterested in both Lizzie and Bridget, before approaching Andrew where he slept on the couch. He was struck 10 or 11 times in the face with the hatchet. Mm. I'm going to say something now that is one of the grossest, most heinous things I will ever say. So, Clay, I am sorry for this. Um, And to anyone else listening, fast forward about 10 or 15 seconds if you don't have a strong stomach. Starting now, don't listen to what I'm about to say next if you don't think you can handle it. One of Andrew's eyes was cut in half, indicating he was asleep at the time of the attack. Half of his eye ended up stuck to the ceiling with the other viscera, while the other half slid down his cheek and into his mouth, where he would have choked to death on it if the other hatchet blows hadn't killed him first. Wow, that is pretty disgusting. It's horrifying. I mean, it is bar none the grossest thing I've ever heard in my life. As someone who consumes a lot of true crime media, I've developed a strong stomach for grisly details. But I dry heaved when Jack mentioned that during the tour. Yeah. It probably doesn't help that I was sitting on the couch, the infamous couch uh, at the time. Yeah. I was yeah. sitting right there on the spot when he said that. And I looked up at the ceiling and was just like, oh my God. Okay. I got to go. So it's worth noting that in the crime scene photos, Andrew Borden is still wearing his boots, not his slippers. Hmm. It's also worth noting that he was still actively bleeding when Lizzie called for Bridget to come downstairs because Andrew had been attacked. What? I mean, I guess so much for that department store sale, right? Like, this makes it immediately obvious that Bridget was lying to the police. Because Lizzie was obviously home if he's still bleeding and he's been hit in the face 11 times with the hatchet. And he's still got his boots on. Like, that's such a weird thing to lie about. Yeah. Another thing I want to point out is that the Bordens lived on a busy street with lots of pedestrian traffic and that these murders took place between 930 and 11 o'clock in the morning when there were lots of people out and about in their neighborhood. Their next door neighbor, Adelaide Churchill, was a key witness. She was one of those ladies who sat on her porch spying on folks all day to get the hot goss. Like, we (laughs) all know that type, right? Yeah. So Adelaide was able to verify that Bridget was washing the windows that morning during the time of Abby's murder. And she also told the police that she never saw anyone enter or exit the house during that 930 to 11 o'clock time frame other than Bridget when she finished washing the windows. Adelaide's porch faced the Borden's back door, which you'll remember is the only one that was unlocked. Just a little noteworthy tidbit. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So back to Lizzie and Bridget. They they come across Andrew's horribly mangled body. He pretty much does not have a face anymore. They tried to summon the family physician, Dr. Bowen, but he was out on house calls that morning. Now, the town doctor is a different different doctor. The town doctor lived next door to the Bordens at that time. But Lizzie told Bridget not to fetch him, that they would wait for Dr. Bowen to get home before getting any sort of help for her father, who, again, was still bleeding, which implies he was still alive. Hmm. That racism we talked about earlier comes into play here because the town doctor was an Irish immigrant, but Dr. Bowen was an English Protestant. A third doctor lived in their neighborhood on the street behind the Borden home, but that doctor was French Canadian. So that's not going to do either. 
But you would think like, I don't know, your dad might still be alive and either one of these doctors could potentially save his life. You'd be willing to go to anybody who could help unless you didn't want help. Seems to track. Right. And you can't even say at this point, like, oh, this just happened. And Lizzie's thinking, well, this kind of gets us out of a bind because she allegedly doesn't know that Abby is also dead. So you would want to save your dad in that case, because then that means you're about to lose your home. If Ab- if Abby is really at her friend's house still alive, like you would really want to make sure your dad didn't die. It's just kind of odd, you know. <clears throat> So right out of the gate, Lizzie starts lying to the cops. Eventually, Dr. Bowen got home and made his way over to the Borden house to declare both Abby and Andrew's deaths. Investigators determined that Abby predeceased her husband by 90 minutes, as I mentioned earlier, which means the Borden family wealth would be inherited by Lizzie and Emma instead of Abby's family. Just an interesting little nugget of info for you, you know, something to kind of have in your back pocket there. So right out of the gate, Lizzie starts lying to the cops. Not only that, her story changed multiple times. She basically said something different to each cop who spoke to her. Hmm. Dr. Bowen later testified that this was because he gave Lizzie a double dose of morphine between the time of his arrival on the scene and when the police showed up to interrogate her. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on morphine, um, but I have, like after surgery or whatever, and you do say some goofy stuff. Like famously, you you get kind of dumb <laughs> when you're on morphine, right? Yeah. <clears throat> What's interesting here, though, is that the amount of morphine Dr. Bowen gave Lizzie was more than enough to kill someone of her size. A double dose of morphine. She weighed about 130 pounds at this point. It should have killed her. Yet she's coherent enough to give a statement and answer questions, even if her story keeps changing. There's some speculation that she and Dr. Bowen were having an affair and that he was supplying her with morphine to which she had become addicted, thus explaining how she was up walking around after being given that high of a dose. Now, while there's no concrete evidence to support this, like no diaries or like letters between them or anything like that, We do know that Dr. Bowen had a morphine problem. So he was committed to the Taunton Insane Asylum two years after the murders to treat his extreme addiction to morphine. And he remained there until a few months before his death in 1918. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So we know he was keeping it on hand pretty much all the time Hmm. for himself, if not for anyone else. The first person arrested for the murder of Andrew and Abby was a Portuguese immigrant who was detained a few hours after the murder. I couldn't find any information on the sort of quote unquote evidence they had against him, but folks figured out pretty quickly that he was innocent and they let him go. Okay. And it was a while before they had another suspect, despite Lizzie's suspicious behavior. A lot of that boils down to the fact that she was a well-bred, wealthy white lady who taught Sunday school, and police believe the brutality of the murders pointed to a foreign man for whatever sexist, xenophobic reason. Makes sense in a sexist, xenophobic um, time that was. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose so. 
my detective work back then was just kind of wild. I mean, because of that, obviously, but also because I feel like anyone with the knowledge of modern criminality would look at the extreme overkill of 10 to 20 hatchet wounds and the gore that's like literally dripping from the walls and ceilings. And your first thought is probably going to be like crime of passion rather than, I don't know, some random dude who isn't from here? Question mark. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Yeah, tracks. Um, I'm an armchair detective only at best. <laughs> Regardless, detectives eventually turned their eyes to Lizzie Borden, who had been lying to them the whole time, who had not shed a single tear or seemed shaken up at all in the aftermath of the crime, and who flagrantly destroyed evidence by breaking and disposing of a hatchet and burning a dress, both of which had dark brown stains on them that looked an awful lot like dried blood. Mm. Yeah. She was arrested on August 11th, one week after the murders. Racism comes into play yet again during her trial. So while the mayor of Fall River and the bulk of the police force were Irish Catholic at this time, the judge and 11 of the 12 jurors were English Protestants. So although the evidence against Lizzie was circumstantial, there was a mountain of it. She did not do one single thing correctly following these murders, like nothing at all. But who are you going to believe? Clay, are you going to believe a bunch of them or one of us? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't hurt either that uh, she was now in possession of half of her father's fortune and could afford the absolute best legal counsel. There were a few things going in Lizzie's favor, for sure. So I guess it isn't too surprising that at the conclusion of her trial, the jury took only one hour to return a verdict of not guilty. That's crazy. 55 minutes of that hour were spent eating lunch. Oh, well. Yeah, Yeah, they thought they so after about five minutes, they were like, I mean, you're not guilty, right? Um, but we don't want to just walk out after five minutes because it'll kind of look like we stitch things up. So let's have like some sandwiches and then we'll let them know. Okay. <laughs> so a couple months later, Lizzie and Emma moved into a mansion on the hill, that fancy Protestant neighborhood I mentioned before, where they'd been wanting to live for years. They named the house Maplecroft and it became Lizzie's sanctuary because, as you might expect, she became something of a spectacle in Fall River. She was even shunned by other members of the church she had attended her whole life, the one where not so long ago she'd been a Sunday school teacher. The people she was close to for the remainder of her life were generously rewarded for their friendship. She threw lots of parties at Maplecroft, which actually caused a rift between Lizzie and Emma, who was much more of an introvert. So Emma eventually moved out of the house and they didn't speak again. Okay. Lizzie also purchased the mansion next door to Maplecroft as a gift to one of her maids who fell in love with and eventually married Lizzie's chauffeur. The bulk of her generosity was directed toward two causes she was passionate about, the suffragette movement and animal welfare, with animal welfare being the big one for her. She helped found the Animal Rescue League of Fall River, which is still in operation today. And she and Emma both left huge portions of their estate to that organization. So if you go into the Animal Rescue League of Fall River to this day, there are portraits of Lizzie and Emma Borden hanging on the walls. Wow. Yep. Ultimately, I am 100% sure that Lizzie got away with murder because of her money and her status, which is really gross. Mm -hmm. 
But on the other hand, I kind of love her. Um, I've said it before. I want to say it was in the John Dillinger episode, one of the that two part episode. Um, I'll say it again, just in case. Um, don't do crimes. That's kind of my blanket advice for anyone listening is that you shouldn't do crimes. But that being said, Lizzie did what had to be done to ensure that she and her sister didn't end up on the streets at a time when women had no rights whatsoever. And then she spent the rest of her life not doing crimes and being super philanthropic. So um, good job, girl power. I don't think I'd go that far, but well, it is an interesting story. Now, I did want to ask. Sure. Um, where does the majority fall on this? She's guilty. On guilty. Yeah, she's guilty. Um, I mean, there, Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. You know, that's... Oh, yeah, that's true. The children you know, knew yeah, that. Even, you know, kids out there jumping rope who don't even really know who Lizzie Borden is knew she hacked up her parents. Um, now, before going into this tour, you know, Melanie and I were talking about it. Like we were actually walking around target, uh, as you do. Um, and we we're kind of talking about like, Oh, what do you think happened? And we were both kind of of the opinion that it was uncle John who committed the murders because like, why did you go so far out of your way? Like, it's kind of weird. He just so happened to be there when this happened. And, um, he, along with Lizzie was encouraging Emma to leave and all this. Now, he very obviously knew it was going to happen. He knew the plan because why else is he going to all these links to verify his alibi? Okay. But I don't think you could look at any of the documented evidence around this case and think anybody but Lizzie did it. You have Adelaide watching that door all day. She knows it wasn't Bridget because Bridget was outside when Abby was murdered. Yeah. We know nobody could come through the front door because Andrew couldn't even get through the front door when he came home. There's nobody else. Lizzie was in the house the whole time. And certainly to, I mean, by her own admission, she was in the house when Abby was murdered, but you didn't hear anything. Yeah. You didn't hear a woman like right over your head being like hit with a hatchet 20 times. And then there's the dress and the hatchet. So they found three hatchets when they searched the property. Two of them were totally clean. One of them had the the hilt broken off of it. And the head of the hatchet was like thrown in a toolbox under a bunch of like rusty looking tools. But the hatchet wasn't rusty looking. The break on the wood that was still in the hatchet head was a very fresh break. And there were dark brown spots all along the blade of the hatchet. Now they found someone that her defense found someone to testify that those were rust stains. They were not rust stains. Like the guy who testified for the prosecution was like, are you calling me an idiot? Like, are you an idiot? These are not rust stains. Then you have her dress, which a couple of days, a friend of hers, I believe named Alice um, came to stay with Emma and Lizzie after the murders, you know, between the time of their murders and when Lizzie was arrested, Alice came to stay with them. It's just like, you know, they're, oh, we're so freaked out. We need someone to stay with us. 
Um, so Alice, who was also unmarried, came and stayed with them. And a couple of days after the murders, um, Lizzie pulls a dress and Alice testified to this. Lizzie pulls this dress out, this blue dress that has these dark brown stains all down the front of it on the hem of the dress. And she throws it into the coal stove to burn it. Mm. And Alice was like, um, what? And Lizzie explained, oh, this dress, I haven't worn it, you know, in in several months. And it was um, when we were repainting the house, I that the paint wasn't dry. And I walked through and I got some paint on my dress from the door frame. I didn't realize it was wet. Um, but you're choosing now to burn it. Also, the house was painted green. It's odd. Uh, yeah. Very strange. So I, I don't think it could physically have been anyone else i don't think that's possible um there would have been motive to kill andrew because he's this wealthy businessman that means you're going to make a lot of enemies you're this english protestant guy living in this irish catholic neighborhood in your fancy house you're going to make a lot of enemies but then why would the murderer come into the house and brutalize abby leave Lizzie alone and wait in the house for an hour and a half for Andrew to get home when he wasn't expected to be home until the afternoon. Yeah. That'd be weird, right? It's pretty weird. Hmm. Well, guys, thanks for listening to this rather grisly episode. (laughs) (laughs) Apologies if I've offended your delicate sensibilities and more sincere apologies to anyone who doesn't enjoy uh, learning about true crime related history since, yeah, we just did two in a row. Um, I can't speak for Clay, but uh, I promise not to cover another murder for at least a few months. I can't uh, I can't uh, guarantee anything. I, I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you, honey. All that being said, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave, leave us a rating and a review on whatever podcast platform you use. Make sure you subscribe so you'll be notified when new episodes come out. Uh, this week on our socials, I'll be posting some pictures that I took at the Lizzie Borden house last week. So if you want to see those, check out uh, Fantastic H Pod on Twitter or Instagram. You can email us at fantastichistorypod at gmail.com to register your complaints about how gruesome the last couple episodes have been. Links, as always, are going to be down in the show notes. Until next time. Bye.